Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. As we've seen so far on the show, there are all sorts of factors that can mean that a child is excluded from school, from disability to poverty, or from gender to religious beliefs, not to mention a combination of the above. There are those, however, that are often even excluded from conversations about inclusion. It is not uncommon for those that plan or implement inclusive education to take a leaf from John Stuart Mill's book and, in a utilitarian kind of way, attempt to offer the largest number of learners the best support possible. This, as discussed on the recent episode with Professor Lani Florian, means that teachers usually teach for the average, for those within a bell curve. Those outside of this curve find themselves neglected and excluded. Learners with severe, profound and multiple learning disabilities all too often find themselves in this position. How hard it must be for a teacher to accommodate a child with SPMLD in their class of 30 or 40 children. These learners often need round-the-clock support and care and mainstream teachers simply do not have the time or the training to offer this. They're excluded for practical reasons such as this and perhaps because of this, they're excluded from most debates about inclusion These students make up between 1 and 4% of the population, depending how you measure it. Should they receive a disproportionate amount of attention compared to their classmates? Do they find mainstream schools or special schools more inclusive? Here to discuss these fascinating issues with me is Dr. Leela Kozivaki, Associate Professor in Severe, Profound and Multiple Learning Disabilities at the University of Birmingham School of Education. Leela's published several peer-reviewed research papers, reports, book chapters, and a research monograph. Currently, together with Peter Imre and Mike Sissons, she's preparing the co-edited book, A Different View of Curriculum and Assessment for Those with Profound, Complex, and Severe Learning Disabilities, available soon from Routledge. Leela Kozivaki, welcome to Goal 4. Hi, Richard. Thanks very much for the invite today. Thanks for coming on to speak to me. It's, uh, It's really great to have you. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, about your your work with learners with severe, profound, and multiple learning disabilities. Can we unpack this? What exactly is meant by this phrase? Oh, that's uh, an interesting question and a very logical way to start because uh, there is quite a lot of ambiguity about who these people are. They're not very visible in our society. So the people with severe and profound and often multiple learning disabilities are the more disabled, intellectually disabled people in our society. So trying to unpack a little bit, uh, someone with severe learning disabilities is uh, someone who has got uh, quite significant uh, intellectual uh, impairment, difficulties, as uh, you wish to call them. They often have um, great difficulties with uh, communication, independence skills, and they are the people who at school need um, a lot of support uh, in all areas of the curriculum. So knowing that there are a lot of uh, difficulties with IQs and how these are measured, especially with people with intellectual disabilities and communication difficulties, if we try to put it in terms of IQs, we talk about uh, people who have an IQ of roughly between 20 and 40, so quite low. And then people with uh, profound uh, and multiple learning disabilities are people who have more um, severe intellectual uh, disabilities. They have also additional uh, 
health conditions uh, or like physical impairments they might have a severe vision or hearing problems and they often have other disabilities and uh, medical conditions like can be cerebral palsy or it can be um, epilepsy and in terms these people when they go to school they will need 24-7 um, support not only in all areas of the curriculum but in everyday life and um, in terms of IQs we are, these are people who might have an IQ lower than uh, 20. So as you can understand it's a very short small percentage of people um, in terms of percentages if you want me to go into that this is not very clear across the globe because we have different ways of um, calling uh, people with severe and profound learning disabilities. It's quite UK based, uh, this uh, terminology. In other parts of the world, uh, we tend to call them severe intellectual disabilities. And so we use the term intellectual in terms instead of uh, learning. And um, overall, they are um, between. Um, the overall learning disabilities across the globe is between one to three, four percent. And within this percentage, we talk about four uh, percent of them having severe learning disabilities and another two percent having profound and multiple learning disabilities. So as you can understand, we talk about a very small percentage, which is um, underrepresented in research and policy documents. And hopefully that's uh, why I'm here for, just to say a few things about this population. Well, exactly. Um, and it's really interesting that you say that uh, um, the, the, the label and the, the nomenclature is different in different regions. Uh, we see that a lot with, with work in this area and other, in other um, topics. But I'm, I'm presuming there's, it's quite difficult to have an exact cutoff point between, but to have someone with considered to have a disability and someone that is considered to have a severe and profound uh, dif difficulty or disability. And is that one of the problems, do you think, in identifying and measuring uh, numbers of students? Actually, this is a very good uh, question. Uh, yes, even uh, within the UK where I'm based and working, in school settings it's not clear where is the cutoff and uh, yeah although we we're not particularly fond of having a very clear cutoff it is quite important for the educators to have a broad idea whether it is moderate or severe learning disabilities and this is this has a lot to do with um, what we teach them and how we teach them so talking with about someone who might be towards the mild or moderate range. We're talking about some uh, adaptations with the teaching strategies, the ways we deliver the curriculum. While when we move towards the severe and profound end, then we're talking about the need of a different uh, curriculum and different ways of assessing them. So when I try to introduce these terms to my students at the University of Birmingham, or when I talk to the general public, I try to use uh, fictitious examples like case studies, how someone with SLD might look like and how someone with PMLD might look like, so they get a better understanding of the population I'm talking about. It's very important also to know roughly where this cutoff point is when uh, we do research. And it's a big issue because uh, some uh, studies might claim they have employed people with severe learning disabilities, then they fail to prove that with uh, tests and assessments. 
And the problem comes to when they draw some conclusions about this population, which then policies take on and try to uh, apply to school settings. So typical example with some very um, fond of and I kind of use quite a lot is um, teaching literacy and uh, numeracy. So uh, there are a few studies which claim that they haven't followed people with um, severe learning disabilities and as participants, these people haven't got uh, severe, but more towards the moderate uh, end. And then the results, the conclusions they made based on these results are about severe learning disabilities. And then poor teachers, they get this uh, policy document saying you have to do teaching of maths and uh, writing and reading. And then these learners cannot uh, respond to that. So then you can understand how the story goes. Then the teachers, especially if they're inexperienced and young, they internalize that as a personal incompetence and the story goes on and on. So although for a discussion like this, it might not be uh, very important to know exactly where is the cutoff point. If you are a researcher in the field or if you have to teach learners with SLD and PMLD, it's quite important to know where is this line to draw. And I suppose it's important in terms of the support that they're getting as well. You mentioned earlier that some of these students need 24-7 support in schools. Um, so we we come across this uh, problem in, in this field a lot. I think that you, you almost want to shy away from giving a group of students a label or um, othering people in, in that kind of way. But in a, in a more pragmatic sense, it is really useful in terms of the support given and the adaptions to teaching. And, uh, and the research as well, which is something I hadn't thought of. So that, that opens up a, a whole new can of worms there. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask about how this all fits with international conversations about inclusive education and um, international commitments and phrases such as all means all and sustainable development goal four. These learners are often excluded from these conversations, it seems. It seems that you, a lot of people you talk to about inclusive education they talk about getting as many um, learners with disabilities into school as possible, and they, you know, there's there's a there's a slight feeling that the one or two percent that they feel really couldn't manage in a mainstream school aren't included in that conversation, and then some other uh, setup needs to be provided for them. Why do you think this is, and um, is it important to change how we view this? Oh, that's a, a huge uh, discussion and uh, a difficult one to, to have as well. I guess the problem with uh, inclusion means all with these learners is that, uh, yeah, in theory, we can say that, but in practice, I haven't personally seen any example of uh, successful um, inclusion of someone with PMLD in a mainstream school. So, and then going back to the whole notion of inclusion, um, it's really interesting how dubious this term is. It means so many different things to different people. Is it about educational inclusion? Can we go beyond that? Do we have to go beyond that with certain um, type of learners? So I, I am in favor of inclusion for all. I think ethically and morally, that's the right thing to do. However, my background comes from teaching learners with SLD and PMLD, and I also teach at university level people who work with these learners day in day out 
So I know practically that uh, you can have someone's needs fully met if they are, in most cases, in uh, a mainstream setting. And uh, it's, it's true that uh, people can try hard and they might have the best intentions, but practically you, know, you need the equipment, you need very trained people, you need the time. So a lot of the special schools, they have one-to-one uh, -one or two learners for one uh, member of staff who are ideally very well trained. So I heard in one of your previous podcasts, you were talking about equality and equity. That's exactly an example of that. We, we talk about learners who have different needs, which have to be met. So I can't practically see how this can be met in a mainstream setting. Inclusion, however, goes beyond mainstreaming. So it's not about school uh, inclusion. It, it can go beyond that. And I think it, it has to go beyond that. So the inequalities and the exclusions we see at the school come and really reflect the, the stem from and they reflect the inequalities we have in society. So it has to be about a change in society to accommodate the needs of these people, to have them included in their society. And then we can possibly a few years start talking about um, inclusion in uh, school. And um, I will give an example of uh, my personal experience, professional experience comes from special schools. And I know that a lot of them, not with learners with SLD and PMLD, with the more able autistic learners with mild to moderate learning disabilities who are in uh, special schools, they do try hard to collaborate with mainstream schools in order to achieve some sort of interaction and inclusion. However, the mainstream schools, how they are um, operating nowadays, they don't have the time for that. It's not one of their priorities. It doesn't tick any of the offset boxes. So I can see so many examples of special schools trying hard for that, for learners which can be achieved. And then offset society, so it goes beyond school, doesn't seem to be a priority from mainstream schools. So we're trying to achieve inclusion with trying to include special uh, needs people into the mainstream educational system. My personal opinion is that the mainstream education and the society has to change first to accommodate these people. And then possibly we can talk about uh, some cases of uh, educational inclusion for these learners. And some of them will always have their needs, the needs best met in a special school despite that. But nowadays we are very far from something like this. Well, it's interesting you bring up Ofsted because that's a, that could be a whole podcast in itself, um, and it's been in the news a lot recently in the in the UK actually. Um, but another phrase used is is looking at inclusion beyond mainstream settings, and it's true as you say that in many cases learners with a PMLD or SLD do go to special schools, um, certainly in the UK. Can we talk about inclusion in this context then? Is this more about having a sense of belonging for the students or to use your phrase inclusion beyond mainstream? Um, could you could you elaborate on this a bit more? Yes, of course. So this comes from uh, research as uh, I try a lot of what I'm saying to real to base it on research evidence. So there has been a very interesting uh, study by someone called Greg uh, Goodall. And he interviewed actually people with uh, autism, I think most of them without any sort of um, 
uh, learning disabilities about their idea of inclusion. So what, what uh, how a perfect included school would look like for them. And one of uh, the quotes uh, which came out from these interviews was inclusion is a feeling, not a place. So it's a lot about this idea of uh, feeling accepted, of feeling part of a broader group, rather than this division, black and white. Is it mainstream or is it special education? And we talk about people with autism who might not have any sort of um, learning disabilities. They might prefer, their parents might select for these people to go in a special school and follow the national curriculum, but uh, they have their right systems in place, the equipment, resources, and trained staff who know what their needs are because they might get very sensory overloaded, they might get very anxious, so they might want to go to a special school for that. So I can imagine, because sadly we don't have uh, studies about uh, the views of people with severe and profound learning disabilities in this field, that it should feel something similar. It's extremely difficult to take the views of uh, people with SLD on a topic like this, because as you can understand, we talk about very abstract uh, concepts, how an ideal school look like, and it's impossible to get it uh, from people with PMLD. It has to come via proxies, people who know them well. So my feeling is that it, it should be something similar to what uh, the autistic students said about uh, mainstream and special schools. And I use that uh, quote a lot, it's not mine, it comes from this uh, study, that it is about uh, a feeling, feeling included more than being in a mainstream school. I really like that um, line, In inclusion is a feeling, not a place. And it's uh, it's similar to um, uh, the, the work of um, my friend Puneet Singh, who was on the podcast as well, who spoke about um, people wanting to be in their tribe and being around people like them and we see that a lot in um i mean that you don't have to look at disability education to find that people people are like being with people like them and maybe um maybe special schools are somewhere where people find that so yeah it's not always it doesn't always have to be in a mainstream school i suppose this feeling of inclusion yes and no this your idea just your point just reminded me of uh, i used to do some uh, support work with uh, students with autism at the university while i was doing my phd and i remember i was trying to have a conversation with one of uh, my autistic uh, students about uh, meeting other people and by definition i don't know why and i thinking but i thought it was a silly point to make i asked her whether she would like to meet other autistic people and she told me I would like to meet other people, no matter whether they're autistic or not. I, I don't care. And I think that's exactly it. It's every case is different. Yes, it, it might be important for some people with autism to be in a special school because they have the need to be with people who are similar to them. And some others might prefer to be in mainstream, surrounded by people with no disabilities or uh, not that uh, clear signs of um, autism or learning disabilities. So it's um, an individual case and we I just hate having this generic uh, one rules apply one rule apply for everyone. So it is different and if we can judge case by case, which is not sadly possible every time, but it would be ideal if we can see every single learner student individually and try to see which setting is ideal for them. Do you think more could be done to involve them in conversations about that? 
in terms of the setting that they would feel most comfortable in? Uh, in terms of autistic learners with um, up to, I would say, moderate learning disabilities, definitely yes, is my answer. Sadly, for people with PMLD, you can't have this conversation. And then if you want to have such a conversation with someone with SLD, it has to be a concrete conversation. So I can think of how this can be done if the specific person has got the experience of both settings. So we talk about school A versus school B. So what you like in this setting and what you like in the other setting. And try with some visual support, simplified language to get an understanding of what are their preferences. It is possible, uh, but uh, it needs a lot of work. It needs people who know how to, to work with a specific learner, who can interpret uh, what uh, they mean. And uh, it might not be clearly stating something, but you can see that uh, they might uh, get really upset by the body language, uh, the, the level of uh, language they use. So you can tell a lot of things by non-verbal, uh, non-linguistic means in these uh, people. But definitely, I think it is possible up to learners who have got uh, SLD. Yeah, I'm interested in, um, just, to go, just to go back to the support that some of these students receive. Um, lots of people listening um, may never have been in a school setting where such children are present or their support are present. Could you just describe what this support looks like? Are we talking professionals that work with a certain child on a one-on-one -on -one basis or family members or specially trained teachers, or is it a real mixed bag depending on the, the, uh, the situation? Yeah, uh, can I just start by saying, uh, I think one, one interesting point you mentioned here is that many people haven't got an idea of how such a setting looks like. And uh, even in the UK nowadays, I have, um, heard of some horrible stories about uh, teachers, the trainee teachers who go on placement and it's the first encounter they have with someone with uh, special needs. And they even ask the question whether it is contagious. And uh, you can imagine what's happening beyond the, the UK. So it is very important. And I think it's uh, one of my personal uh, priorities to try to get this out of the general public, to try to make uh, this population uh, known. And I, we try with public events and more work needs to be done there. But going back to the actual uh, question you asked, special schools um, differ a lot based on which part of uh, the UK or England, which is uh, the country I'm based and I'm more aware of. So depending on which local authority you're based, you might get very different uh, special schools. Um, an idea, special schools, and I have to say that I have been to a few of them across the country, uh, is um, depending on the level of learning disabilities. So for the more intellectually disabled or physically disabled learners, ideally they should have more uh, higher adult um, student support. So there, there have been schools that they might have a classroom of, I would say five to eight learners with one teacher and three, four teaching assistants. Um, some learners, it's usually the ones with challenging behavior who can either put themselves uh, in at risk or um, colleagues um, like their peers or uh, other members of staff. This might be a one-to-one, -one, so one member of staff with one uh, student. 
and there have been very few cases and it's usually temporary that there might be two members of staff working with uh, one learner, especially when we talk about secondary education. The main educator there is the teacher who has uh, to have um, a degree, um, ideally in, in, in most cases, and schools follow that to a great extent, with the exception of certain disabilities like vision, uh, hearing impairment, and multisensory impairments, so deafblind there isn't um, a mandatory qualification. So anyone can, with some, uh, with a degree can go and teach these uh, learners. So that can be a problem. And then this person has to deal with a number of um, assistants who there are no like set qualifications they might have. Some of the teaching assistants nowadays, they might have bachelor degrees. Uh, and then they are on their way up to becoming a teacher and they have some uh, experience of trying to have some experience as being a teaching assistant. Some other times you might have uh, some uh, people with some NVQ uh, qualifications, level two or level three, so like professional uh, qualifications. And um, it's difficult many times, and there have been studies about that, there is a lot of management, adult management in there. And that's not definitely something that is part of a teaching uh, degree. So you, you come to the university to, to get your um, qualification to become a teacher and you get very little, if anything, on managing others. And a lot of the work in special school is about managing others. The resources, so a lot of the funds go into buying resources. Again, there are issues there about uh, spending money on really expensive resources or really expensive training, which don't have research evidence to back up their effectiveness. But um, overall, a very good special schools, having the right staff and resources in place can be an ideal experience of, um, for a learner with SLD and PMLD. And it's usually the experience of the parents sometimes because these schools are not always, but in most cases, smaller. It's um, more personal to the parents, so they feel like they have better communication with the teacher. They're part of a wider community. So it seems like in many cases, uh, parents uh, find special schools um, easier to navigate because they've got also this support. They do even trainings for the parents to help them uh, deal with their child when they are at home. So I don't know whether I answered the question. I went off on a tangent with many different aspects, but uh, it's almost impossible to describe an ideal uh, special schools. But I can tell you that I've been to many schools in the UK, special schools that they are very close to being ideal. Yeah, and if we look, if we look further afield uh, globally, particularly in poorer regions or LMICs or um, developing countries. I'm sure the picture is different where schools don't have the resources to provide that that one-on-one -on -one support with a, with trained support staff and then I suppose that the what we've seen in our work is that often the burden is falls on the family to support the children uh, can be a big big brother or big sister or you know on community members so it is yeah I suppose it depends where we are in the world what resources we have that that has a has a impact on the support that's available please it is true to a certain extent and I, I don't have experience uh, from really developing countries as you would define 
but I can share my experience from uh, Greece and uh, the settings there. Apparently, the resources, uh, especially a few years back, because it's not going very well in the UK financially at the moment either. But I think it is the teacher who makes the greatest difference in the education of uh, the students. So e even if you don't have the resources and the systems in place, having a very well-trained teacher can make a huge difference in the life of these um, children and their education. So I can also confirm that I've seen cases of some great practices in both special and mainstream schools in, over in Greece. However, in the mainstream uh, school cases, they were all um, students with some subtle difficulties, some autism without uh, intellectual disabilities, dyslexia, you know, like the, what we would call the more mi mild difficulties. But it is doable in other parts of the world and we shouldn't underestimate the impact that we as uh, people, as educationalists have on the learners. Yeah, absolutely. It always, it always seems to uh, come back to teachers. Um, almost everyone I've spoken to on this show has uh, just confirms the, the importance that these people have in education. Um, I wanted to wrap up soon, but first, what are your thoughts on the future of work in this area? Would you like to share any key lessons you've learned during your career? Yes, I can. I mean, there are too many. I like learning and I have uh, learned so much from my experience in this uh, field. I guess uh, what I would like to see happening more is what I said before about um, outfacing public events like institutions, uh, like uh, universities uh, to arrange uh, public lectures for everyone outside the university to just uh, make these people uh, known to everyone. So I think there is much more to be done. And thankfully the universities, going back to what I told you about the society and the systems have to change, universities now assess um, academics like myself based on public engagement. So then it's not like we do it for this reason, but it is uh, worth investing time and effort into that because it doesn't go wasted from your employer as well. So I would definitely want to see more of this uh, happening. I am so desperate to, to see more studies, including people with um, autism and intellectual disability, especially towards uh, the severe and profound end. I was saying to you earlier that uh, there was a study a few years back uh, stating that uh, from 2016 studies, only uh, like 4% uh, of these studies included people with uh, learning disabilities, not severe and profound from the whole range of learning disabilities. So we see there that although in the autism field so much research is taking place, it's primarily about autism without learning disabilities. So that's something that I would like to see happening more. And finally, one of the other area that um, I'm very fond myself, I do a lot of work and I think there is so much more room into that. It's right to develop uh, intervention approaches, frameworks with other researchers, teachers, practitioners, families play a very important role in helping us develop uh, things. Test them somehow in more rigorous research design so we see that there is some sort of effectiveness and then take them out to the community, to the school, to the home settings, even broader community and train people to use them. Because at the moment, I'm very worried about how much money schools in the UK spend 
onto interventions and trainings that they don't have any research evidence backup. And I think this has to change because if not, we can use this of some of this money to, to invest on people. As we know, they make the difference. Well-trained people can make a huge difference. So it might worth investing more money in employing more people than buying, a, I'm into technology, into my research and buying a very expensive technological product with no research evidence. So I think universities have to work in uh, close collaboration with uh, parents with school settings, develop interventions, uh, try them with support, and then give, give them to the community, to the teachers, to the parents to use them with their uh, pupils. Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, Lida, thank you very much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your thoughts. So interesting. And um, all the best for the research. Thanks very much, uh, Richard. The pleasure was all mine. That was Leela Kozivaki. My thanks to her for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode of Goal 4, why not subscribe? You can listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week.